Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Most cooks have at least one of these nights in their life where you're moments away from this angry, hungry mob coming to, to assault <laughs> you in the kitchen. <laughs> Braden Perkins is chef and owner of two restaurants in Paris, Ellsworth and Verjoux. 
He's an American who moved to Paris with his girlfriend, started the supper club, and then never left. But before we get to my conversation with Braden, we speak to Grace Young about what she cooks on a Tuesday night. She's named the Poet Laureate of the Walk. She won a James Beard Award for her cookbook, Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge. Grace, how are you? I'm very good. Okay, stir-fried rice. You make the point, which is great, that this is sort of the ultimate go-to everyday recipe. Could you just run it down for us? Um, You know, if you want to improvise dinner, you have some leftover rice. How do you think about it? So I always have cooked rice in my refrigerator. And so by having cooked rice in the refrigerator, I know that I can have dinner on the table within 10 minutes. The most important thing is when you cook your rice the day before or three days earlier, after you've cooked the rice, use a fork or a spoon to break it up so that it's not a solid mass before you refrigerate it. You want to loosen up the kernels and then refrigerate them. And fried rice has to be made with cold cooked rice. If you try and make fried rice with freshly cooked rice, it's too moist and it's bound to stick. And so to make fried rice, the simplest way is to heat your wok, do the water drop test, swirl in maybe like a tablespoon of oil, and then I add aromatics. And then I clean my refrigerator out and I add a cup of diced carrots and stir fry that for a minute. Or I add some diced celery or peppers, or in the summertime I love cut corn just about a minute or so, and then I add the rice. Sometimes I'll swirl in another tablespoon of oil before I add the rice and stir-fry for another minute or two. And then you can season it with salt, pepper. Lots of Chinese are very pure about their fried rice. They don't want it to be colored, so they would never add soy sauce. And if you want to add a protein to it, you could add diced ham. You could add diced cooked chicken. You could add uh, cooked shrimp. And there you have a one-pot meal that is nutritious, fast, low in fat. And you can pump it up with as many vegetables as possible. Grace, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. That was Grace Young, writer and author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge. Millstreet Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malton, and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Lisa from Ohio. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. How can we help you? My question is about making chicken broth. Okay. In the summer months, we purchase our chickens from a local farmer, so I end up with a whole bunch of carcasses left over after I take off the breast, take off the thighs, and take off the wings. Normally, what I do, I hate to admit this, is I sometimes throw them away, and I feel like it's sacrilegious because there's still a lot of meat on there and, and fat and such. But I have in the past made chicken broth, but simply water and bones. I don't add any seasonings, not even salt. So I have an overabundance of chicken carcasses, and I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> well, one solution would be to use a pressure cooker because that makes great mm-hmm. chicken stock fairly quickly carcasses, you hack them in pieces and throw them in the pressure cooker. That works pretty well. Okay. I, I have frozen quart containers in my freezer of right. good homemade chicken stock. Some of it I actually buy from a local store, some of it I make. And I got a bunch of those sitting around, eight or ten of those in my freezer. Should I be skimming any of the fat off after I make the broth, or should I keep it in there? I would let it sit and cool for a couple hours mm-hmm. at room temperature on a rack before you put in the freezer, and I would skim off any extra fat at the top, yeah. Okay. And actually, good schmaltz, but... Yeah, it's it's schmaltz. It's you know, what's used a lot in uh, Jewish cuisine. Should I be skimming it and saving it? I, I yes, would. actually, I, you probably should. You can yes. freeze it. It freezes beautifully. <laughs> skim it and save and then, it. And could I use that as a replacement for lard in such in recipes? The way I would use it, it has a low smoke point, 
But it, let's mm-hmm. say you were going to slowly cook onions for a chicken stew. It would up the flavor enormously. But I wanted to ask you a question. Is your problem that you don't really have room for all these carcasses? Correct. Here's what you could also do that takes up a lot less space is after you've made the broth and you've let it cool and you've skimmed off the fat and you save the fat maybe separately to cook it sometimes. Reduce it down. Right. Simmer it until it will literally become thick, like a thick, thick, thick jello. You can reduce a gallon down probably to a cup. Should I just put it on a diffuser and then let it sit on my stove for the day as it cooks down? It won't take all day. No. It may take okay. an hour. It depends on how much you have. But okay. then you can put it in smaller containers. And actually, when you remove that much liquid, you can keep the gloss in the fridge I'm not going to swear my life on it, but for at least two weeks and perhaps a month. But I would freeze it anyway. And then what happens is you can use it as the base for any sauce or any stew. Just add water. And also you can freeze it in ice cube trays. (laughs) Yeah. And then you just pop them out and put them in a bag and and put them in the freezer. And then you can use the concentrated chicken stock, you know, by the cube. Right. And, And by the way, that would be a lovely gift for friends. This is like instant dinner because it's instant sauce. That's a really good idea. Okay, very good. Thanks for calling, you and all your chickens. Thank you so much. Wow. Thanks, Lisa. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Stein from Baltimore. And how can we help you? Well, I have a question about um, nonstick pans. The answer Uh, is don't buy them. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, mean, I didn't want to, like, short-circuit this yeah, discussion. Yeah, but let, go the, let the go gentleman ahead. talk, go Chris, ahead. please. No, no, that was the essence of the question. It was. You were hoping we'd sentences. say that. <laughs> it was several sentences long, but, uh, yeah, that was the question. Uh, all of my pans are all just stainless steel, but um, right. sometimes, you know, we'll be traveling and we'll end up somewhere. What, all they have is nonstick pans, and they're all scratched up, and... Right. So <laughs> I sometimes have to just bring a pan not knowing, you know, it's so great. Well, I'm glad I got a professional. Well, yeah, here, here's the problem. First of all, there are things that obviously stick, you know, fish, eggs. sticks, eggs stick. Pancakes. Uh, stir fries where there are a lot of sweet ingredients, sweet things stick. My solution to that is I have a carbon steel pan, which I season well every time I use it. And that does, it's very nonstick. I can do scrambled eggs in it. And I use a wok, which is you know, a steel pan. Again, it's seasoned. Nothing sticks to that. So I can do stir fries in that. And then, of course, you could have a cast iron skillet, which is also nonstick. So the nonstick, 70% of cookware in the United States is sold nonstick, which makes no sense. And yeah, scratches, it always makes me wonder where that stuff is going, whether I'm eating it or not. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, And just the notion of cooking with plastic ware on a hot surface just seems so... Weird. Well, um. there's new iterations of nonstick that aren't toxic, that aren't plastic. So you're talking uh-huh. about, I, and I agree with you 100%, the old-fashioned model, which was two plastics. Now they've eliminated one of the plastics, but nonetheless, it's plastic. The point is you don't really need it. Uh, again, a carbon steel skillet costs 20 bucks, 30 bucks. Season it properly and season it every time you use it, and it's great. So I'm not a big fan of nonstick. Well, I just want to defend these new green alternatives to the old-fashioned, which are mostly ceramic-coated, and they are not toxic. You still need to use, say, a silicone spatula. You can't use metal on them. And it's true, they only have a two-year shelf life. So oh, that is really... Which is perfect for the cookware manufacturer. But yeah, exactly. Well, Planned obsolescence. Yeah, so when they start to get all those nicks, and they do start to stick after a while, they lose their non-stick but, but this, But the ceramic stuff is not non-stick. It's low stick. Yes. But it still I've works pretty it. darn well. It, it works okay. It works very well, but it only has a two-year shelf life, and you have to be very careful with it. You have to be using your carbon, your black steel, all the stuff that Chris said on a regular basis and keep it well seasoned. And if you do, then yeah, you don't need nonstick, but you have to use it regularly and take good care of it. You have to take care of it. And that's why people like nonstick because they don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But anyway, I'm again it. (laughs) All right. Well, well, thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know why baking times are always wrong or what to do with Harissa, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? 
Hey, this is Celeste from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about mashed potatoes. Okay. And I love mashed potatoes, but I hate the process of peeling them. It's so, so time-consuming. And so a couple of months ago, I tried roasting them in the oven and then using a large spoon to scoop the flesh out before right. I mashed it. And I liked the end product. It was so much easier. And I went online to do some research and see what people had written about this cooking method. And I found a couple of recipes, but I didn't see a lot of people writing about how it compared to other methods of making mashed potatoes. So I was just curious what you guys thought. It's true. If you dry roast them, you get a fluffier texture. I think Jeffrey Steingarten uh, writes for Vogue. He, he wrote a book called The Man Who Ate Everything. He wrote about that too. But, of course, it's going to take you a lot longer to do that. If you boil a potato in its skin, you're not going to get much water absorption. When you people, still have to peel it, though. Yeah, you have to peel it when it's hot, too, mm-hmm. which means on a fork, and then you have to peel it, and you yeah, burn your messy, hands, messy. and a few other problems. Messy. Uh, but the problem is there's no place for the water to go. Like if you do French fries in oil, there's an old Robuchon recipe. You start it in room temperature oil and bring it up to temperature. The oil can't get into the potato, and the water really can't get into the potato because there's no room inside that potato for the liquid to get in. So there isn't that much water absorption, especially with the skin. The other thing you can do is once you've boiled the potatoes, drain them and put them back in the hot pot yeah. and just for a couple minutes heat it, and that will also get rid of some of the extra liquid. However, you are going to be adding milk and butter and other things to the mashed potatoes. Anyway, I would say you get a better texture from roasting, but I don't think it's worth the effort. Slightly. Well, do you mind the hour in the oven before you scoop them out? Not hugely. I'm usually doing other things. In well, the then that's fine. Then do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's an easy way to go. It is the best method. Yeah. And also something I learned, if you add the butter first, yes. it sort of coats the... Uh, coats one the of starch. The, what really makes potatoes gluey is what you do to them after they're cooked. And if you agitate them, you know, too much, like the last thing you should ever do, and believe me, I know because I did it once, is throw hot potatoes in a food processor. You will break the food processor because so all their starch comes out. So after you've scooped them out and put them in the bowl and you're getting ready to mash them, throw in the butter first and coat them completely with the butter before you add the milk, cream, whatever else you're adding. And that way they'll be even lighter and fluffier and less gummy. One last trick. If you're going to reheat mashed potatoes, you want to make them ahead, don't add all the liquid when the first time around, like hold off a third of the liquid. And then when you go to reheat them, add the balance of the liquid. You know what I actually... Stir them in and that works well. What I do when I pre-make... Put them in a slow cooker. No. <laughs> no, what I do is I uh, make the potato part. Let's say if I'm going to boil it, I rice it and then park it. Or if I'm going to bake good. it, I scoop it and then park it. And then you just nuke it at the last minute and then add the softened butter first and then the cream. So that's a way to do it ahead, too. Well, you can also simply make a recipe and then nuke them to reheat them. And microwaves actually reheat mashed potatoes very well. Do they? Yeah. Anyway, anyway that's we've now run out of <laughs> everything we know about mashed potatoes. <laughs> so, so, so go ahead and well, roast them. Helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks for calling. Last. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bye. bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, how hard is it to open a restaurant in Paris? My guest is Brayden Perkins, owner of two restaurants in the City of Light, and he explains how we beat the odds in a city that does not welcome outsiders. Coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. 
My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today, Mill Street welcomes Braden Perkins. Braden is chef and owner of two restaurants in Paris, Ellsworth and Verjoux. He navigated the treacherous world of real estate agents, food critics, French regulations, and a suspicion of outsiders to become a very successful Parisian chef and restaurateur. Uh, Braden, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we met a few years ago at Verjoux, which is your wine bar restaurant uh, in Paris, and also, I think, actually connected to it, isn't it? Or nearby is Ellsworth. Yeah, Ellsworth is about halfway down the block between yeah. where Verjoux is situated and the Louvre. So let's start at the beginning, which, as they say in the musical, is a very good place to start. You were for Tom Douglas in Seattle, I think. Yep. You get the crazy notion of coming to Paris for six months. You do a, something called the Hidden Kitchen Supper Club, I assume, out of yep. your apartment. So, so what was that and how did that work? So I think, you know, the idea for us was that we had arrived in Paris. Uh, we had planned to take you know, six months to a year and just kind of be here and explore Europe. But the issue was we were here in Paris, just my wife and I, or my girlfriend at the time and I, and uh, we didn't have any friends. We came from being in college full-time in Seattle, uh, working for Tom Douglas full-time. So we had an incredible group of friends in Seattle, and then we came to Paris and didn't know anybody. And so the idea for Hidden Kitchen, which was a separate club in our home, was that we would be able to invite people and maybe have a dinner once a month where we could kind of hang out with locals and talk to people that had been living here for a bit longer than we had. So 
the French have a way of doing things. And you're right, real estate agents won't even show you a space if you don't have a degree or significant work experience in the same field, not like the United States. Uh, we'd walk in and say, quote, we want to buy a restaurant. We're paying 100% cash. And the response would be, hey, what did you go to college for? Exactly. <laughs> it, it was very frustrating. But you ended up with, I mean, it is one of the most wonderful spaces in Paris. How did you end up with that space? How did you how did you get by all of the amazing bureaucracy of, of buying a restaurant in Paris being Americans? I think, you know, we were looking full force. Like we had someone that was helping us out and Laura and I were just walking around the neighborhood jotting down names of places that were either seemed like they might be failing soon or had already failed and they had a sticker in the window saying that the space was available. I think at the time we were working with 11 different agents, which I think most people don't do, but we were just opening up the phone book or Google and calling everybody that could possibly have spaces. And so I think we also honed our skills of of explaining exactly what we'd wanted. And what had started with them refusing to show us anything because I didn't have a degree in hotel restoration. Towards the end, we, we knew exactly what they wanted to hear, and we'd walk into the, an agency and just say, oh, hey, uh, you know, I used to work for Elaine Ducasse, and I worked at his, his <laughs> hotel in, in, in Monaco. And, and they, of course, would open up the best pages of the real estate book and show you the nicest properties. Uh, I love it. Uh, So then you also say French people are going to be skeptical of you from the start, and they're going to seriously hate you if you actually succeed. You've been a huge success. You're part of this new wave of, uh, you know, American and British and Japanese chefs. So do they like you or do they hate you? I still remember the the title of the first article that came out about us because we'd had heaps of American press and and British press and foreign press. Uh, But the very first article that came out about us in French, they sent a photographer and we sat down and there was photos of, you know, me standing and Laura on a chair and it took all day. And the article came out and we read the headline and it said, Central Paris is under attack by Americans, comma, danger. (laughs) So... Answers that question. I, I think they made their opinion of us being in the center of Paris uh, quite clear. Um, let's talk about the food. I have your menu here. You know, it's it's pretty sophisticated. Parsnip tart, uh, crostata with onions and red cabbage, uh, use of pumpkin, lots of other things. What was your concept here? And Was it filling a hole that wasn't being filled in Paris, or you just cooked what you wanted to cook? I think initially... When we had the idea to open a restaurant, we felt that there was an aspect of dining out that was missing, and that was with a major focus on the cuisine and and the ingredients and the types of things that we're doing in the kitchen, but with an environment that was less stuffy, less formal, a little bit louder music, white tablecloths absent, you know, a bit more wood and a bit more... um, I guess, casual kind of relaxed environment in the kitchen. And I think like in Paris specifically at the time that we'd got here, you had a lot of restaurants where you could go and spend heaps of money and, you know, there'd be three or four servers around you at all times. And and the food was great, but, you know, not the kind of place that you wanted to tuck into once a week or, or, you know, three, four times a month. And so I think for Verjou, that was our idea was to create that space, like the space that we missed from New York, the space that we missed from Seattle, where you can go and, and have a really good time and that there was a massive emphasis on the food that they were serving, but that it wasn't stuffy and it was easy to be at. So here's the part of the story I, I don't get, because the, the food's great, the restaurant's great, both of them. Uh, I don't know how old you, you were. You said you were sort of recently out of college. You show up in Paris you start a supper club in your home in the first. It ends up in the New York Times. You're booked six months ahead of time. Then you go out with, I assume, very little capital. I think I read somewhere that your father or father-in-law said, don't get investors, do it yourself. Anyway, you, you, you're going to pay cash for a restaurant. You open a restaurant. You open a second restaurant in a city that's not habitually, uh, you know, op- open arms to the American restaurateur chef. Uh that seems like an almost – I mean, if you did that movie, nobody would believe it, right? So <laughs> so what? what is it – everyone wants to do this, right? For every one of you, Braden Perkins, there's like a thousand other people who don't make it. How did you make it? 
I think we were very we were very fortunate in the period of time that we opened. I think when we were opening, uh, I would say maybe only Daniel Rose was doing something similar. Was that spring uh, spring restaurant? Spring, yep. yeah. And uh, Greg Marchand, who opened Frenchie, was doing something similar. But at the time, I would say that you know us and those two were the only ones that were doing interesting menus using super fresh farm ingredients and doing it in an environment that was like casual and fun to be at. Uh, and so, you know, we opened and, and I think it, it happened to also be the time where French people were kind of discovering that this type of eating existed. And so, you know, we had a clientele in French people. We had a clientele in, in, in visitors to Paris that, you know, just couldn't eat six days in a row of uh, of, of duck confit and foie gras, and and so I, I think that that's you know we were we were kind of one of a few, and it took off like that. I think you know people found us. Um, okay, let's talk about Ellsworth, your second place. Uh, this does have fried chicken with buttermilk. I guess is that Le fermente buttermilk. Yep. How is it different? What's going on there with the food? So, so the Ellsworth fried chicken was the Verju wine bar fried chicken. So before we opened the tasting menu restaurant upstairs at Verju, we had this little wine bar downstairs, which seats maybe 12, 14 people. And uh, same thing with the restaurant, like wanting a place that like didn't exist here, something casual, but like was an emphasis on food. We wanted to have this like little wine bar that you could tuck into very easily uh, with lots of kind of finger foods. And originally, I came up with six recipes for stuff that would always be on the wine bar menu. And the very first one was fried chicken. I think it just didn't exist. Uh, and so we kind of tinkered with a, a bunch of recipes and came up with something that like, we thought was easy. And you know, part of the reason that we don't serve it on the bone, as I would probably normally make it if I was making it at home, is that in the wine bar at the time, it, everything was meant to be finger food. And so we have these little nuggets that we take from breast, we bring in whole chickens and the the rest of the bones go towards stock or items for the tasting menu. Uh, and then the, the breast we kind of piece apart and soak in brine and then butter milk uh, into seasoned flour and then into the fryer. Ellsworth uh, McNuggets, good. <laughs> so was there a time in this process of starting Verishu where you just didn't think it was going to happen? It was just like the last straw and you almost just you know decided to go back home? I, the first night, I think that I just I wanted to walk off the line, and just book the first flight back to the U.S. And I just felt like a disaster. You know, you, you there, I think most cooks have this at least one of these nights in their life where there's 30 tickets or 40 tickets in front of you, and you're just not sure how it's ever possible that you could get through each one of them and each of these courses. And time seems to be standing still, and you feel like people have waited hours, and you're moments away from this angry, hungry mob coming to to assault you in the kitchen. I think history is a lot to say about French mobs, and it's none of it's good. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so, and that was because you just had a ma- I mean, you had reservations, so you knew you only had 32 seats, right? So, was that because it just it was for real because you probably had a soft opening before we, that. we had some soft openings and everything went quite smoothly and then you know it's it's 32 people all sitting at the same time it's myself and my sous chef and that was oh, it see. we had one other cook that was working the pastry station kind of doing dishes at the same time and it's a lot of food all at the same time it's 10 courses 32 people you're sending out 320 plates here with two with two wait wait, wait with, with two people with two people the, yeah really and I think at the time we had no systems. You know, we just had tickets all over the place. Right. We had, uh, you know, people with allergies all over the place, which which just causes a hiccup on on the tasting menu in general. And you know, we we had never done that many people all at the same time. It it was sloppy. What and what happened? Did, did everyone get served? Finally? Everyone got served finally. You know, you you walk out into the dining room, and I think especially because there was probably a third of the dining room was French, and French people never uh, give you positive uh, feedback as you're, as you're going. You know, at the end, they'll, they'll say, oh, everything was delicious, but you, like, go out into the dining room, and it just icy glares looking at you, angry, uh, and you kind of retreat back to the kitchen and just, uh, just hope for someday it's going to be over. 
So these days you've now acquiesced to the process. The French love the process, not the result, right? So they, they like the process and you now like the process too. It's sort of part of your gestalt as, as being an expat in Paris restaurateur chef. I think so, yeah. I, th- I was at a, a dinner party the other night, a bunch of expats, and I said, and they said, you know, what is the year that you kind of forget that you're American and just realize that, like, you like being here? And I was like, oh, maybe, like, two, three years into it. And I, I'd say when we first got here, there were so many aspects of America that we really missed. We missed, you know, service at a restaurant, I think, in the American sense. And, and now I'd say it's it's quite reversed because when we go back, we feel a bit more foreign while we're there when you have this never-ending, you know, three-liter glass of ice water that you're not really sure what to do with, but it keeps filling up. And, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've come to accept Paris as our home. We've been here for 10 years now. We're in the process of opening a third restaurant. And so I think we really enjoy our life here and we really enjoy the people that we've met and having the restaurants that we have. Braden Perkins, you, uh, you're a better man than I. I don't, <laughs> I just, I, I, being a chef and restaurateur just seems like the hardest job in the world. Either you love it or, or, or you shouldn't be in the business. You love it. Verju and Ellsworth opening a third restaurant. Thank you so much. I really appreciated your time. It was nice talking with you. That was Brayden Perkins, chef and owner of two of my favorite restaurants in Paris, Ellsworth and Verjoux. You know, I used to love Paris because I could have lunch at Chez Georges and find the same menu. Grilled sole, duck breast with lentils, andouille sausage, along with small, cosseted dogs hand-fed by owners, and the waitstaff lined up on the pavement on a warm June night, having a smoke before service. Or perhaps stop by Lou Ruby for a working lunch, beef bourguignon and the like. Nothing special, but cheap and well-cooked, accompanied by a decent carafe of vin ordinaire. Now I love Paris because it's changing. Yet change always carries a price. One hopes that the past is not sacrificed for the future. Right now I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. You know, my favorite recipes are the ones that people just throw together in minutes. They don't even think about it. Uh, and that happened to us recently. We were in Lowell cooking, actually, with a Cambodian cook at home. And uh, while she was making the main dish we were really interested in, she said, well, let me just throw together a soup. It was actually a Vietnamese soup called Khun. And uh, it has just a few ingredients, takes maybe 20 minutes to make, and it's absolutely fabulous. So, so what is this dish? So Chris, this dish is a Vietnamese meatball and watercress soup. And actually there's a lot of similarities to like an Italian wedding soup, just the flavor profile is very different. Um, So we like to use peppery live watercress, which means that it's just packaged with its roots and that's pretty easy to find at the grocery store. The live watercress stays fresher longer and it's easier to clean. Uh, You could certainly use baby spinach if you can't find watercress, you just wanna roughly chop it so that you don't have big pieces of the greens. So these are pork meatballs, but I mean, they have like 20 ingredients in it, like some Italian meatballs, or is this simple? No, Chris, this is super simple. This is just a pound of ground pork, and we add scallions and ginger to kind of lighten the flavor. And then there's also a little bit of white pepper for spice, a little bit of fish sauce, and the whole thing is held together with egg white. And so after we roll out those little meatballs, we just pop them in the fridge for about 20 minutes, and that's gonna help them stay together when we simmer them in the broth. So the actual cooking is 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, how long does it take to actually cook the soup? So it only takes um, about 15 minutes to cook the soup. The meatballs themselves take 8 to 10 minutes. And something to note here, Chris, because we don't brown the meatballs, which is awesome, sometimes they might not look what you might think a done meatball would look like. So they will be cooked after about 10 minutes, but if you're feeling at all nervous, you can cut them in half or you can take the temperature with an instant read thermometer. Sometimes the salt from the fish sauce can actually make the pork keep a little bit of that pink color, but I promise you they're fully cooked. So what happened to the uh, spicy fresh watercress? Is that in the soup? Yes, the spicy fresh watercress just gets stirred in at the very end. Um, and then you're going to brighten the whole thing a little bit with lime juice and add more savory flavor with a little bit more fish sauce. So, Catherine, this is a quick Vietnamese soup that is very simple to make half an hour. I've made it a couple times. It's one of my favorite go-to soups. Thank you. You're welcome. You can find a recipe for Vietnamese meatball watercress soup at 177milkstreet.com.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some of your calls, and uh, Sarah Moulton is with me. Sarah, you're ready. I am, Chris. I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line, and how can we help you? Hi there. This is Adam from Attleboro. How are you doing today? Hi. We're good. Great to hear it. Uh, so I have a question about uh, Mexican and Central American food. I am a vegetarian, but I definitely try to use all the, the tricks in the kitchen I have available to me, especially when it comes to uh, that area of the world cuisine. And the problem that I'm running into is that in Costa Rica, you know, when they make rice and beans, they like to use pork. And in Mexico, when they try to make, you know, very flavorful, pungent sauces, they tend to use a little bit of pork or some sort of meat as a base, not only for the flavor, but for their consistency. And I'm just wondering if there's anything I can do to replace some of that flavor or the fattiness, if you will, of uh, using pork in those dishes. And still remain a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just make sure we got that clear. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, uh, just use lard. You're all set. Yeah. Well, the two issues are meat flavor, which is umami, and fat. So you could attack the fat issue by adding other fat. Olive oil is fine. The other way to think about it, to step way back, is if you use strongly flavored ingredients. To begin with. To begin with, you don't need the meat. So in Mexican cooking or Costa Rican cooking, they char things, you know, on a comal, which you could use a cast iron pan. You could char your vegetables in a hot pan. That gives you a lot of flavor. You know, using spices, uh, toasting spices and using them in dishes, bean dishes, for example, like cumin, that sort of thing. That would also go a long way to help. Using acidic ingredients like certain vinegars, for example, uh, would also help. So I would just think of not substituting for pork. I would just say you want to enhance flavor. And so charring works, spices you know, work, acidic ingredients work. 
just come up with more big flavors and try to balance them out. Other things that do have meaty flavor, tomato paste. I was going to say. does have umami, of course. That's something you could use, too, as a base if you're sautéing some onions or whatever. Also, slow-cooked onions and garlic. Garlic seems to really help with some depth of flavor. What you might want to do is go online and Google umami ingredients and then just pick and choose what you think would work in your particular recipe. There's all sorts of things. Like carrots have umami. Who knew? Well, there's another trick. If you're going to cook beans, for example, take a head of garlic, cut the top quarter off, throw it in the water, and when the beans are cooked, you also now have cooked the garlic and squeeze out the garlic. It'll have a very rich, mellow flavor. It won't have that garlicky flavor, and that would be a terrific base for a bean dish. There's another trick. I was recently in Japan, and they use kombu for everything. They use that to flavor water, and that water is then the base for cooking. You could just throw some kombu, which you can Do get into. Do you want into, to tell everybody what kombu is? Well, it's a form of essentially seaweed. <laughs> yes. And you can put that in the cooking water, a nice big strip of it. And that will help enhance the flavors of the beans. And that's just a little trick. But anyway, add big flavors and don't worry about the pork. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Yeah. All right, Thanks Adam. Thanks for calling. Okay. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Please call us with any question at 855-426-9843. One more time. or just send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lynn Weiner calling from Ventura, California. How can we help you? Well, I was uh, very excited to get the recipe in the September issue of the magazine about pizza crust. Right. And I loved the resting for the whole day and all of that. The, The dough was beautiful to work with. But I have this ongoing problem with figuring out how to bake it properly. Okay. Cooking in my um, home oven is just a hot mess. Right. Just I find that I have a big mess in the bottom of the oven right. that's burning. So I tried heating up a cast iron skillet in my barbecue. Was it a skillet or a griddle? A skillet. And how long did you preheat it or heat it on the grill? I preheated it for about 45 minutes. That's quite a long time. I think I probably could have melted uh, yeah. molten. Okay, here's how, to, here's how to do it. I grill my pizza. And so what I do is I, it depends on the recipe, usually four balls, right? As the recipe said, make sure the dough is like 75 degrees. It needs to be warm so it's easy to shape. And then I have one side of the grill at medium high and the other side at sort of a medium low. And I shape the dough. It doesn't have to be a perfect circle. It could look like a kidney or something. It doesn't matter. Yeah, Texas, whatever. Just throw it on the grill. And within about a minute or 90 seconds, that bottom crust is going to get really nicely cooked. And then flip it over to the cooler side and then top it. I often just use olive oil and some herbs or something, but you can certainly... Put grated cheese on it. Um, I use raclette cheese, which I th- is a wonderful, wonderful flavor. Wonderful cheese. Prosciutto, whatever you want. And then I use a disposable big aluminum roasting pan and turn it upside down over the pizza. Why wouldn't you just put the lid down? Because it concentrates the heat better. So then your toppings warm through while the crust finishes on the bottom. Yeah, I find the pan really helps to melt the cheese, though. Okay. And then that stays on for maybe three or four minutes it's or very so. Quick. The secret to this I've found is make sure you get the crust really cooked through. Okay. Because if the grill's too hot, you'll end up really burning the pizza before you get it cooked through. So it's a little tricky to get the heat right. But once you figure it out for your grill, you're fine. That'll make the best pizza you've ever had. It's right on the grill grate. Did you the grate with olive yes. oil before? Not olive oil, but whatever cheap oil Some you other- have. Yeah. I agree with everything that Chris said. I have two things to add. Okay. One is that what I've been doing is I brush my counter with olive oil very, very, very lightly. And I put the dough on that, and then I roll yeah, it that out. Works. Yeah. And what uh, happens is the dough will stick to the counter. You can get it paper thin. If you get it too thin, it's really hard to transfer it to the grill without all sorts of problems. What I do is just put it on a sheet pan and take it, you know. You mean the bot- upside-down sheet pan? Yes. Yeah. Now, my friend Elizabeth Carmel disagrees about, everybody says to oil the grates. She says, no, you don't oil Oil the the grates. You oil the food. And so this way your pizza is already oiled. 
And so you just put that's a pretty good idea. So you put it right on the grill. The best thing is the pizza bubbles. Yeah. It gets this great bubbly texture and it's delicious. You know, I think the more you do it, if you just start doing it, the better you're gonna get and you'll figure out all your and own it doesn't little matter. ways. It's, it's gonna be ugly. It's not gonna be perfect looking. Oh, it's that's gonna okay. be okay. If it tastes good, ugly oh, yeah. it's fine. People will love it and put plenty of salt on it. That's, okay. Anyway, okay. give that a shot. Yes. Thank you so much. You're okay. welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. This is Most Your Radio. Give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bill from Colorado Springs. How are you? Hey, Bill. Doing very well. I have Good. a question for you. Sure. My wife and I are kind of devotees also of your show, but the uh, Great British Baking Show. Great show. Made lots of their recipes and have had one problem only. Okay. And that's with allegedly a very simple recipe, the Victoria sponge. We've tried many ways, but we have one problem in that it always sags or droops in the middle. Right. Which is very unappealing looking, if nothing else. So very quickly, just take us through the recipe. Yeah, what's in the recipe and how you do it? Well, it's mainly eggs, sugar, flour, and we've tried self-rising. We've tried regular with some baking powder. And, you know, the classic recipe is you weigh the eggs and use the same amount of flour and sugar. These are whole eggs that are whipped until they're very light and big volume. Then you add in the flour, etc., the eggs and sugar. No, no, no creaming, no whipping of the uh, eggs. Just take us through the steps. How do you do it? We do a quick mix, and we've tried other ways. We've creamed up all the butter, and then it just keeps drooping in the middle. It just, Victoria does not like us. How many eggs are in it? Four medium eggs, usually, and they want something that weighs about 240 grams. Here are the possibilities. It's a foam cake. A sponge cake is a foam okay. cake. So either you're incorporating too little air or too much air into it. In other words, okay. it's, that process is wrong in some way. The second is the oven temperature is wrong. It's too hot, and sometimes, like a cookie... It could rise quickly and then deflate because it's not had enough time to set the structure. As a foam cake rises in the oven, it also has to dry out and be able to support the rise. And if it's too hot in the oven, it'll just pop up and then it'll deflate. The other possibility, you're baking it in what? Cake pans. These are like eight or nine inch cake pans? Yeah, seven or eight. And and are these dark pans, light pans, metal pans? Light. That should be be good. I don't see a problem with that. And what kind of sugar are you using? Baker sugar, the super fine. Oh, oh they that did. sounds... Not powdered sugar. It's like bartender it's sugar. Again, my problem was without knowing the basic recipe procedure. I agree with Chris. It has to do with foam, and you have to develop just the right amount of foam for it to bake. The procedures you mentioned, like you just throw everything together versus that creamy never, sugar. That would yeah, never work. They're just well, so wildly divergent. But we, but we haven't foamed the eggs. That's the one thing we haven't done. It sounds to me like I would whip the whole eggs with a sugar. That would be my way. And then how do you get it. the butter in? There's How much butter is in there? Oh, the same amount. It's, it, it's equal oh, amounts. This sounds of more like a pound cake. This really does. Yeah, if yeah, it's equal amounts. Yeah. Well, if it's a pound cake, then you cream the butter and sugar. You add the eggs one at a time, and then you mix in the flour. Yeah. yeah. So also, geez, super fine sugar. I wouldn't use super fine I would sugar. use granulated sugar. All right. Butter and sugar, cream it. You want the coarser granules of sugar to help. Yeah. So why don't you try doing what Chris just said? And then also make sure you're (laughs) 25 things to watch out for. Make sure that the eggs are at room temperature. They're not cold. The the eggs have to be at room temperature. And then then you add the flour and uh, give that a shot. Wow. Okay. We'll give it a whirl. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. right. Thanks, great. Okay, Bill. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is about making spiced breadcrumbs, which are easy to do, quick to do, and add a lot of flavor to almost any dish. So start with four ounces of country-style chewy white or multigrain bread in a food processor with four tablespoons of olive oil, one tablespoon of paprika, and a half teaspoon of kosher salt. Then saute the breadcrumbs over medium-high heat until crisp. Use a skillet for that. By the way, feel free to add some garlic or herbs like thyme, rosemary, or sage. The crumbs will keep in an airtight container at room temperature for up to two weeks. Right now, it's time to talk with our regular science expert, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the author of The Food Lab, 
Better Home Cooking Through Science. He's also the chief culinary advisor of Sirius Eats. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Uh, you know, on the show, we get questions, and I've gotten questions for years, as you have, about alcohol. And when mm-hmm. you cook with alcohol, especially in a saute pan, for example, in a sauce, how much alcohol is left at the end of cooking. And I remember doing a little bit of work on this years ago. Uh, one thing I do remember is you never get rid of all the alcohol. So what's the science behind cooking with alcohol? Well, so water has a boiling point of 100 degrees Celsius. Alcohol has a significantly lower boiling point. I think it's around like 75 degrees Celsius or so. So you would think that if you were to take a mixture of alcohol and water and raise its temperature to 75 degrees, that what would happen is that the alcohol would eventually all burn off and the water would all remain. But that's not actually what happens. Um, And it's all because water and alcohol, when they're combined, they form a particular type of mixture called an azeotrope. And one of the characteristics of an azeotrope is that the combination of the two liquids together actually has a lower boiling point than either one of them does into individually. And even more importantly is that what's boiling off of there is neither pure water nor pure alcohol. It's always a mixture of the two. So in order to fully get rid of all of the alcohol, you also have to fully get rid of all of the water. Wait, wait, wait. You just said something that just blew my mind, that alcohol boils at, let's say, 75 degrees centigrade or so, 70, 75, water at 100, and a combination of alcohol and water will boil off lower than the boiling point of alcohol. Could you explain that? Because that sounds crazy. (laughs) If you think about it, like, let's say, two teams of kids on a playground, um, you know, the alcohol is dressed in blue shirts and the water is dressed in red shirts. Uh, You know, when you have just a bunch of red-shirted kids together and they're all holding hands together and their goal is to to stay as one big red team, um, it's relatively easy. Now, if you add a bunch of those blue shirts and now there's like people sort of getting in the way, which makes it more difficult for both of the teams to to grab onto each other's hands. So it, it's, it's essentially when you add alcohol to water, it sort of weakens the, um, the molecular bond between oh. the individual water molecules. So it makes it easier for them to then evaporate and get off into the atmosphere. So the answer to my question, at the end of the day, if there's some liquid left in the pan, water or stock, whatever, and alcohol, you will always have some alcohol left. You will always have some amount of alcohol. I mean, it could be a very, very minimal amount. For instance, like a um, a loaf of bread that's been fermenting you know, or a pizza dough, there's some alcohol in there also just because it's a byproduct of the fermentation process. Most people don't worry about that. And I think in the same sense, you probably, unless you know, unless you have some very, very specific reasons, you probably don't have to worry about the amount of alcohol left in a pan sauce after reducing wine. So uh, last question, does it matter how you reduce and how long? In other words, if you have a wide 12-inch skillet, that's going to mm-hmm. do a better job of burning off the alcohol than, let's say, a three-quart saucepan. Is it about surface area? Yeah. The more surface area you have, the more area there is for evaporation to occur, so the faster it'll reduce. You know, Similarly, if you want to reduce with the lid off, you don't want to put a lid on your thing. Otherwise, everything's just condensing and falling back in. If you have the time, generally, you end up with better flavor if you reduce slowly at a bare simmer as opposed to a really rapid boil. Anytime something is reducing and you can smell it in your house, that's a sign that there's actually aromatic compounds from within the pot that are leaving. They have to get out of there in order to get to your nose. So the more you smell something, the less flavor there's going to be in it at the very end. Boiling hard can actually drive off more of those sort of aromatic compounds than, than simmering gently. With a flambe, you have to use a high alcohol liqueur or liquor. Yes. Wine's not going to flambe because there's not enough alcohol, correct? Yeah, that's correct. What you're doing with a flambe is you're basically igniting the fumes, the alcohol that's evaporating off, you're lighting that airborne alcohol. If there's not enough alcohol coming off there, you're just not going to have enough fuel in order to light that fire. So it only it only works with uh, really high proof spirits and liqueurs. When you, when you do flambe, um, you, you're burning things at a higher temperature than what's in that pan already. You know? So your sauce in that pan is going to be somewhere in the you know, probably 80 to 100, 100 degrees Celsius range, maybe a little bit less. Um, but when you're actually flambeing something, you're getting it significantly hotter than that, probably a few hundred degrees hotter than that. Um, so when you flambe something, you, you end up sort of creating new flavor compounds that are only sort of created at these higher temperatures. So I have a last question to solve a great mystery here at Milk Street. A year ago, or so, okay. a caller on this show called in and said they were cooking, I think, a goose or something with a bottle of red wine as a braise in a closed oven, Dutch oven, in the oven. And after an hour or so, there was an explosion <laughs> and the oven door you know, flew open. Wow. And then uh, she looked inside. Everything was fine. 
But is that because over a long period of time, the alcohol started coming up to the top of the oven, coming out of the Dutch oven and creating a layer of flammable gas? I mean, what would that be your guess? That seems unlikely to me, um, especially because modern ovens, I mean, they, I mean, I guess electric ovens don't all vent, but if there is a live flame in there, then it has to vent. And that would include any alcohol that was sort of evaporating off the pot. I, w- I would guess more likely that the lid of the sealed Dutch oven probably formed some kind of seal. And then that pressure gradually grew inside the Dutch oven uh, wow. just through, you know, just because of the evaporation and that maybe knocked the lid off the Dutch oven. And then I don't, I, I really doubt there was an explosion because I don't, I don't know how you can make a bomb out of a bottle of red wine. Well, it was so much better with the explosion. <laughs> yeah, your, your, your explanation is probably right, but it's not quite so exciting. Okay, there you have it. Uh, you'll never get rid of all the alcohol, but there won't be much left if you do a nice slow simmer in a wide skillet. Thank you, Kenji. All right, thanks for having me. You know, most of us think of food science as the art of perfecting recipes using science to optimize flavor and texture. Yet the idea of perfection in cooking is really at odds with the art of cooking. A painting is not a perfect representation of reality for a very good reason. It's the personal interpretation that really counts. Science does help us build better technique, but the creative arts gives us the inspiration to use that technique to good effect. So art and science really do go hand in hand. That's it this week for Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Public Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, and watch our first season of Milk Street Television or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music, Hang Tan by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.